0: I realized that I could continue to start building my platform and trying to get more followers. That's what they mean by that. Or I could just write the damn book and publish it myself. So I decided to go that route so I could get the story out because it's been like on my heart for, you know, a long time.
1: Okay, we are back. With uh, Reagan Walsh, we are doing something that we have yet to do, which is have a repeat guest on the podcast, which uh, I'm really excited about um, because you know, you and I have a now uh, long uh, history, right that um, <laughs> we talked about in the first episode, it goes back uh, to a pretty funny story uh, that we laugh about now. Um, but it really does kind of take you back to your early career. And, you know, there's a lot of kind of interesting things, I think, from my standpoint, as how we both have evolved in our careers and kind of where our lives and work have kind of overlapped in, you know, a period of time, which, which to me is kind of like the best part of the, Work world is having long term relationships where people are evolving and crossing paths and coming in and out of each other's lives. And so, anyway, I think it's fun um, to get back together with you to now talk about your book. I mean, we can talk about everything in your life and your work, which is really. Uh, what this book is is covering. And I'm so happy for you. I'm so excited for you. This book is launching and it's a big deal. I know this was a big deal for you. And so, uh, yeah, welcome back.
0: Thank you so much. And Brett, is it fair to share this with the listeners that this is essentially essentially an IOU? Right. Like if they listen to the first episode, they're going to understand that you do owe me.
1: Yes. Right? Yes. That's yeah. fair. I'm not sure, like, at what point I stop owing you. Um,
0: you know, I'm not sure either. I'll let you know when we get uh, there. Okay. Right. But we're not quite there okay, yet. Okay.
1: Cause I, I thought yeah. maybe we were getting close to even. But anyway, I, I'm not sure. All right. About well, that. nonetheless, uh, I'm happy to um, try. <laughs> I will keep trying to make up for my um, mistake that I made many right. years ago. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, talk to me about Heart Boss. Let's just kind for of sure. start there. And, and what I'm curious about before we kind of get into the content of the book is I, I'm yeah. curious about kind of why. I, I often feel like sometimes these things are like, they're like things you got to get out of you. Like they're like in mm-hmm. you. And like sometimes you can't even... I don't even know if we're like in control of what's happening. It's just like happening. That's been my experience. But I'm curious, like what was your experience with why the, the kind of the first, the why write this book?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting because the why actually started about the time I met you because my life was going through such a major transformation. Like, as you know, I left my first husband. I was in a, you know, after that, I got into a relationship with a woman that was completely unexpected. I lost my job. All of these things happened pretty quickly. And it was then that I started actually journaling and writing notes because I was like, wow, these stories are amazing and they're kind of hard to believe. And I should write this down and I should write a book someday. So I actually have a file with an old table of contents that I created back in 2008 or 2009-ish. And, uh, some of those stories are, are part of heart boss. So for me, it was like, wow, you know, we can do hard things. And the more people share their stories about, you know, being resilient and having courage and taking the best step for them versus for doing things for other people, the better we're all off. So for me, it was important to share my lessons and my story, um, to hopefully help other people do exactly the same thing uh, in their journey.
1: Yeah. You know, I've, um, thought uh, about writing a book myself and I'm in a bunch of masterminds where people write books and there's publishers and there's a lot of you know discussion about it and it, and it feels like something that you know I will someday do. Um, but I, I think the kind of idea of, uh, of it and then the actual doing it, are two very different things, right? Like, I, it's a total ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, my belief, and this is why we do the podcast, is that everybody has a story. And those stories are really helpful for other people to hear because we're all the same in some way, shape, or form, right? So, I mean, not every guest mm-hmm. might land with the listener um, or some listeners different from others, but there are people out there that will relate to your story the The thing uh, uh, that is fascinating for me is not everybody will actually write it right not everybody mm-hmm. will even talk mm-hmm. about it not not everybody's mm-hmm. willing to share it so you know before we get into like the the grind of writing a book which i I do want to talk about like what that's like I, i'm mm-hmm. I'm curious to kind of hear more about like what really compels you like how do you get from I have a story, I've got these notes to like, I'm actually going to do this thing. It it seems like there's. it takes a lot of courage to do that.
0: You know, for me, it was um, always thinking about it. So I knew, and Glennon Doyle, I don't know if you've ever followed her, read her work, but she always says like, if you're thinking about it and you can't get it off of your mind, like that's the thing you have to go and mm-hmm. do. And so for me, this book has been on my heart for 20 some years. And over the last 20 years, you know, I have been adding stories to that and gaining experience. Um, so for me, it was as simple as that. Like it was on my heart. It was on my mind. I'm somebody that loves to tell stories, right? And, uh, it, and it was just for me, something natural that I had to do um, because I it's something that I
1: enjoy deeply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's really, you know, one of the themes of the book is is trusting your gut, having that courage. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, that, you know, you're you're and what this is what I love about the book and kind of why I am really interested in it is 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 kind of because I, I I believe the way that you're teaching people is is by telling your story. You are an example of what you're teaching. Right, you're not somebody who intellectually understands this. This has been your life learning, right? And so when you talk about trusting your gut and courage, right, and and it might be, you know, in any number of the steps along the way, the job, the marriage, the you know difficult conversations, you you also had to do that exact same thing to share this story. Totally. Yeah.
0: And I think it's the power of telling stories. You know, I learn from hearing other people's stories, right? That's what. Uh, it compels me to keep moving forward, and um, for me, I just knew like when it comes to trusting your gut. So many of us are afraid to listen to those whispers, or we're afraid of what we think other people will say, or think, or do because of what it is we want. Um, and, and when you boil it down, no one's actually thinking about you the way in which you think they are. Right? We're all kind of stuck in our own heads. We're stuck in this place where um, you know the, it's kind of like a paralysis. And when you boil it down. No one's thinking about you. You just need to follow your gut, do what's right for you um, and continue to take those na- next steps. It's as simple as that.
1: Yeah. So talk a little bit. We, we got into this in the first episode, but just to kind of flesh this out a little more, give people some um, more context, some background on kind of how you've done that in your life. You talk about it in the book. Share a little bit of that now.
0: Sure, sure. So my favorite story or the one that's had the biggest impact on me was when I I started a job on a Monday. It was during the recession. You know, I'd been laid off before and um, I started the job on a Monday and every single day. I just felt worse and worse being there. I just knew it wasn't my calling. I had recently graduated from a program called Leadership Columbus, which gave me exposure into how our city works and all of these different social services that are available. And my calling, I knew, was to do something for the community, to do something that felt way bigger than, you know, sitting in conference rooms talking about women's hair care products. So that week, you know, on Friday morning, I was stuck in this windowless conference room on a four hour conference call talking about women's hair care products. And I don't give a fuck about women's hair care products. And I looked at my new boss and I said, you know, I don't want this job. And he looked at me and he was like, I am so jealous, right? So at the time I was single. I I didn't have responsibilities other than to myself. And so I knew if I was going to take this risk, it was that moment. Um, So I got a job at a warehouse. I, I shipped and received packages. I counted inventory, which allowed me to explore, network, and then land a job at Flying Horse Farms, which is a camp for children with serious illnesses. And I got to build the camp from the ground up. That was really meaningful work. So that moment was um, really pivotal for me in my career and as a human, right? Knowing that there was some greater calling for me out there and having the courage to say, you know what, before I'm fully vested like one week in this company, I'm going to bounce, right? Uh, And and so that's one example of trusting your gut uh, and and really living life on your own terms. And
1: and, I kind of want to get under that a little bit. Like, is that Just who you are is that kind of something that um, you were like as a as a a child? Was it role modeled by your parents? Was it something that you had to like take a step, a jump, and then you realize that you know, okay, that's the way to go? Because you know, the way that I observe you is you're trusting your gut a lot. Right, I mean, I think you know. Maybe it's it's different on the inside than it is on the outside. But you know, you're you've made a number of big, courageous shifts that are are kind of unique in a really good way. You know, in in the way that's authentic and and really honoring who you are. And it's I think kind of gotten you to this point where you're really living this life that you've wanted to live, and it's continuing to evolve but but where did that come from
0: i have to assume i was born with it because my father is somebody who would take risks and trust his gut so he you know was raised in a time where you get a job and you stay there you know forever and he had a job with honeywell and it was a good paying job and there were benefits and there were all these things. And and he had four kids at the time and I'm number six. And so he came home one day and he shared with my mom that he was going to leave Honeywell. They were going to move from Michigan to Columbus and he was going to start a wholesale distribution company selling Honeywell products to other people. Right. And so that was a big risk to, to start a, a company in a new city uh, that, you know, no one else was doing at the time when you have four children and a wife to take care of. And then he added on two more kids. So I, you know, I think I saw it modeled by my parents like it's okay to risk something when you know that it's what you want. And, and so, you know, I, and watching my siblings, you know, take risks along the way, um, and they always made it feel safe. Right. Like it's okay to fail. Um, I, I knew I wouldn't be punished, right? If I failed, if I, um, when I make choices, like I know that I will always land on my feet because of the, the support system that I had. Um, and certainly I've gotten better at trusting my gut over the years. There, there are moments when things feel you know, too big. Um, but that's where, you know, allies and coaches and, and friends like you, you know, come in to play, uh, to kind of hold my hand along the way.
1: Yeah. And so it, it's it's interesting because it really was an experiential thing that you got to observe. Did, did you did you is that like a that you look back and you see it that way at the time, did you have a sense that it was okay? Um yeah, tell me about that.
0: I think it's it's mostly looking back, you know, like when you're in the moment and when you're scared, you don't necessarily know. One of the stories I share in Heart Boss, which I'll share at like a brief moment of it here, um, I was out with friends in high school and... All of a sudden, you know, one of my friends had to use the restroom and we opened the door in the car and he jumped out. And when he came back, he had his Santa Claus with him. It was December. It was a few weeks before Christmas. And so that led to one thing which led to another. And before you know it, there are 45 lawn ornaments in my friend Annie Thompson's Bronco. Right. So we're, we're now we're into the theft game and we eventually decide we're going to go to the high school and decorate the parking lot. And we got arrested because of course that would happen. We got, you know, I had a probation officer. We had to serve Saturday school. I had to do all this stuff. And I remember when I was doing my community service, I had to get up at five in the morning and my dad was packing me a lunch and making hot chocolate because it was winter. And then he said, Reagan, let me feel your hands. And he touched my hands and he's like, they're clammy and sweaty. As we're sitting in the car, he's dropping me off at the police station to go do my community service. And he's like, it's good to feel sweaty and nervous. Like, you know, you should feel nervous. This is a scary thing. Like, you're, you know, you're about to go clean a fire station by yourself for the next eight hours. And and so, like, I remember in that moment thinking, how lucky am I that my dad understands that what we thought was this, like innocent thing, like he didn't blow it out of proportion and I felt safe. And he told me about being nervous uh, and that it was okay to feel scared, right? And it's okay to make a mistake and then correct it. So I think like in that moment, I recognized it because a lot of other parents probably wouldn't have said that to their kids. Um, and, and so certainly he made it feel safe. Yeah. yeah
1: I think that's a really big deal. I, I've kind of uh, had to figure this out as a parent myself. Um, and it's it's still kind of to be determined because you know, my kids are uh, you know, 19, 17, and 14. And and so, you know, we'll see. We've had our, our our kind of similar stories along the way, right? And I have always tried to take that same approach and I believe that it's um, better to to teach, right, and instead of to, you know, really uh, punish. Um, and and I hope that that ends up being true, and it's it's comforting to hear that story. but I, I think it's really, really uh, a big deal because what I think happens frequently is when kids are kind of mischievous, right? They're risk takers, right they're 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 showing in some way. Courage, right, to take a risk, even if they don't know kind of where they should be doing that, when they should be doing it, how far, how much risk they should be taking. They're mm-hmm. they're they're inherently risk takers, and when you have somebody that shames you and tells you you're bad and wrong, that can be really, um, you know, very detrimental to somebody who's in later in life when they have a better understanding of. What's what's Mm -hmm. a good risk and what's not? You know, I you know, to honor it and 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 help kind of teach is is really powerful. I would imagine you know just how impactful that was for you.
0: It it really was, and and he tried to be relatable. So he said, and I loved his example. He's like, you know, once I got in trouble for stealing something, and he stole a lamp. He didn't even really like he borrowed a lamp from a dorm room to give to a friend that didn't have one that needed to study. I was like, dad, that you know, that doesn't feel the same, but he was trying to like be relatable. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I almost got court-martialed from, you know, whatever. Um, cause he was in the air force and ROTC. I'm like, I, you know, it's not the same, but he really wanted to teach a lesson. I'm also somebody that uh, that's the only time I had been in trouble. Right. And so yeah. for me as a person, I talk about the disease to please a lot in the book and also just in my work in general. So I have the disease to please. I want people to like me, I want to take care of people. I just can't not be that person. And so for me, like the shame that I felt for being a disappointment to you know the community, my father, whatever, like that was real. Like I carried that around for a while, yeah, um, I, and he knew that about. Yeah, me. and I
1: bet I was going to say I bet he knew that because I've seen that in my kids too. That sometimes when I see how hard they're being on themselves about what just happened, I'm immediately like. No, 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 don't do that. (laughs) You know, like anything I was going to say goes out the window because all I want them to do, it's like, I already understand they get it. They got it. They feel bad enough. I don't need to pile on making them feel worse. They're already feeling bad enough. And I think that's so important that like, if you have that kind of sensitivity awareness, you know, that, that, you know, you know, you made a mistake, you know, not punishing yourself further. Yeah. We're all human. We make mistakes, especially kids.
0: Oh my gosh, this morning, this morning I was I said, Oh, you know, mommy makes mistakes and you know, whatever I said, I forget what mistake I made this morning. I've probably made 15. And uh, one of my daughters was like, I don't really make mistakes that often. And I was like, Wow, that is so confident of you. You know, like because <laughs> yeah. you you know, uh-huh. but she wasn't like beating herself uh-huh. up for anything. Yeah, yeah, it was very said. funny. Um,
1: you you mm-hmm. mentioned, you know, your dad. We we've talked about him in the past, and I was struck by a story before he passed about a vacation that you guys took. Uh, Maybe you can tell that story.
0: Sure. So, um, you know, I I graduated from college. I found myself, you know, this unexpectedly great job in New York City. Couldn't afford to live in the city. I lived in Hoboken. Um, and I had some success there. And I was cold calling people. I had zero training. Uh, the fact that I was able to like land uh, a client and grow that business to a half million dollars was like beyond anybody's expectations at that moment. And one day, the CEO called me into her office and she said, we're really proud of you. You know, you've done a a really great job. And here's $1,000, right? Which just blew my mind because that was a lot of money. And um, and she said, don't blow it on something dumb. Like, don't go buy shoes. Do have an experience. And it happened that my parents were going to southern France uh, the next month. And I called home and I said, can I crash part of your vacation? Um, And I bought a plane ticket. I think it was $550. I flew to Marseille. I met my parents for like two days or three days. And we, you know, drove around Southern France and we would go to farmer's markets. And I remember we bought peaches, bread, and olive tamponade. And my dad had packed the uh, umbrella that was at the house that they were renting to take to the beach. And he brought an ax with him, right? To put the umbrella into the beach. And we get to this beach um, and, and it turns out that the umbrella he brought was actually for like a table of 10. It wasn't a beach umbrella. And so it's... It's giant, like we just were the, these silly Americans with this giant umbrella. And my my father was a big man. And so this hulking man carrying an ax on his shoulder, you know, it's just like, we were such an embarrassment. Um, but we ate fresh peaches. We had olive tamponade on a fresh baguette. We sat on the beach and um, had this magical couple days together. And, you know, five months later he died. And thank god i didn 't buy a pair of shoes because I got to experience going to Europe with my dad and my mom but um I, it just was like such a gift to have uh with him and it made me treasure experiences over things big time uh even to this day mm-hmm. because of that moment
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I love that the experience over things and it's interesting how much you really remember the the what what i 'm imagining to be like the 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 senses of it all, you know, what you ate, the way you oh felt, gosh. you know, the right yes. and how, how like that, how that gets any time
0: I eat a good peach. Yeah. I think about yeah. it. It takes me back yeah. at every single time. Right. It, may, it takes me back. And to, to be moment. able to yeah. go
1: back, you know, helps propel you forward. It's like a real embodied experience when you have something mm-hmm. that is that kind of front of mind and that important and that impactful. Yeah, Yeah. for
0: sure. You know, there's another thing about my dad, which I feel like we should just talk about this because it's important for people and for kids. Um, So I had depression in high school and I didn't, you know, back then no one talked about it and and no one, you know, you didn't know what it was. And I volunteered at this, you know, Christian camp for a month, the summer before my senior year in high school. And there was a man there that talked about his experience and he was depressed and he talked about seeing a therapist. And I was like, oh my gosh, everything he said was exactly how I was feeling. And so I I went up to him, I asked his wife, I was like, listen, I want to talk to Dave about depression because I think that's what's wrong with me. Right. And so I talked to Dave and he said, if you want, I can ask my therapist. Cause like I come from a family, you don't talk about things, right? Like we're very funny. We're very fun, but you don't talk about anything deep, right. Or like feelings or anything you don't talk. Um, and so his therapist from Connecticut agreed to call and talk to my mom about how I was feeling. And I remember setting up the call. I said, mom, there's somebody I want you to talk to. And she was in her bed- bedroom on the phone talking to the therapist. And I was in the basement on the phone listening. landlines. Right. And, um, so, you know, it comes out that I'm actually depressed. And I remember going to a football game on a Friday night. And I was walking out the door and my dad was watching the McLaughlin group as he did with my mom. And he said, Reagan, you have nothing to be depressed about. And then I walked out the door and he he was right. Like I, I didn't have, I had nothing to be depressed about, I had a safe home, I had two loving parents, I lived in a safe community, I went to a good school, I had food, but I was depressed as hell. Like it took all of my energy to be on for people. And um, fast forward, right, to my life today, um, and I've, you know, struggled with depression kind of on and off, Uh, and so, you know, was on medication, went off of it in my mid-20s, and then COVID hits. And so a handful of months ago, between the kids, the business, uh, I have my mother's aging and we're trying to like figure out that situation. Like how can we give her the best care? I'm in the sandwich generation and I feel anxious and it's hard. And so a few you know months ago, I'm, I'm fixing my kids breakfast. I'm letting the dog out. I'm getting their lunches ready. All of this stuff. And my energy is super fast. And my daughter Maeve looks at me and says, mom, I think you need a feelings doctor. And then Dorothy looks at her and she said, oh, she has one. I just don't think it's working. <laughs> so, you know, my, my daughter, Dorothy, like she knew that there are moments I go to therapy and they know if I'm running with that like fast energy and, you know, not present with them, they know that I'm not my best. Right. And I love the difference between my dad saying, you have nothing to be depressed about to my kids saying, you need a feelings doctor because they, you know, we talk about that stuff. And I think like, what progress, you know, like that we can support our children and that we can grow and that we, you know, for me, it was courageous to ask for help. And I'm so proud of myself for being 17 and raising my hand because it changed, you know, had I not done that, who knows what would happen. I wouldn't be you know, here today feeling as good as I Yeah, do. I mean, I think
1: that there's still, sadly, as evolved as maybe your kids are, there's still this thing where people are at a minimum confused as to why people struggle. You know, <laughs> that there's a lot of assumptions. Um, in fact, I've had this feedback from people that don't really know me that well. Um, you know, what is Brett really talking about? Even, you know, the concept of gaslighting, you know, where it's like, it wasn't that bad. You know, I think there is still this kind of like, you've got nothing to be depressed about. When people don't really understand that that's actually not what it's about. It isn't really about kind of the things that are really good in your life or the things that you're really privileged about, you know, mm-hmm. to have.
0: It's a chemical in your brain. Yeah,
1: it's a lot more complex than that. Um, like look, you know, you you kind of took the courage to get help, which is really what, you know, I think everybody that's struggling needs to do. Talk to a friend, get to a therapist, a coach, somebody that can that you can talk to, right? Cuz just mm-hmm. even sharing, getting it out um, is just such a big first step, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm optimistic, and I love the story that you know our kids uh, will mm-hmm. see that very differently. I do think there is a shift that is happening in that generation where coaching, therapy, self help mm-hmm. is not stigmatized like like it has been in the past.
0: Yeah, I think it will be part of their foundation.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of my daughters, I can see because she's like a perfectionist and you know, she gets anxious uh, and so she'll have these outbursts. And so we actually got a therapist for her and now the other daughter's like jealous, like I want to be able to go. (laughs) Um, And so that's like how she knew about it. Cause she's like, oh mom, maybe you should go talk to Dr. So-and-so. And And I was like, I have my own Dr. So-and-so like, I don't need yours. Um, and, And just to give them somebody that's not me. Right or or my husband, somebody that that can help them like understand why their emotions feel so big yeah. and feel so hard. I just I think it's so important yeah. to equip them with the right the right tools. Yeah, and as
1: much as they are probably going to be better off from the standpoint of kind of normalizing therapy and and uh, mental health, I think they're also probably more likely to be struggling with anxiety more than any generation in the past. And so, oh, it's so sad. you know, and I don't know. If,
0: Why do you think that? Because I think that too. Is it social media? Um,
1: I What I don't know is how much of it, I think it's a combination of things. And I think part of it is that the prior generations just didn't talk about how much they were struggling, right? This generation is is more open to talking about it, acknowledging it. Um, And then I do think social media and I've always struggled with this one because I feel like when I talk about social media being bad, that it's like, you know, uh, the generations that thought Elvis shaking his hips were bad, right? Right. you know, but I, I watched social dilemma and they talk about that exact thing. And I'm pretty convinced now that that has a big part to play, Um, especially for, for young girls. You know, it's just, it, 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 scares the death. Yeah, I, I read something the other day where somebody said, "Why would we think that we would be smarter than the algorithm? Like, what makes us mm-hmm. think that we're smarter than that? You know, and and mm-hmm. and you know, it's scary um, it is scary you know, I, I think you know we're not. <laughs> you know, yeah, if we yeah. were, we wouldn't all be addicted to it.
0: Yeah, oh, I'm so afraid for when my girls get older." And that's a thing.
1: Well, well, kind of along this line, you know, you talk about asking for what you need, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about asking for help um, from, from a mental health standpoint. But this comes up as a theme in the book, the idea yeah, for of asking sure. what you need. And there's a bunch of examples. Maybe you could expand on that.
0: Yeah. So the first example is when I was depressed. And then, you know, there was a, there's an example of asking for a raise, you know, when I, when I, Joined Flying Horse Farms, I took a fifty percent pay cut. Right, and it's not like I was making a ton of money to begin with, um, and my lifestyle didn't change. You know, my mortgage didn't change. Nothing else changed when I took this big step back. And I remember um, one year in having the courage to say like, you know, I had proven myself time and time again, I had leveraged these incredible relationships with friends who gifted us, you know, websites and marketing materials and all these things that would not have happened if it weren't for me. Right. And so I was able to have a conversation, ask for a raise and um, I, I got back, you know, so I got this giant raise more than I even asked for, but it. It's like asking for help, asking for what it is you want. I share examples, you know, for me, if you're somebody that struggles with anxiety and then you have children, (laughs) it's a great way to exacerbate anxiety. And so there was a moment when I had, you know, two kids under the age of two and I just was so tired and anxious and I needed a break. I needed a moment when somebody wasn't saying my name. And so it was telling Nick, like, I need to get away. And he was like, okay, when do you want to go? How can I make this happen? You know, we booked a flight. He used his points. I stayed in a really great hotel. I had all of these plans, right, for what I was going to do in Chicago. Um, and instead I basically stayed in the room, ordered room service, uh, read and cried, you know, because I hadn't had time alone. Um, if if I hadn't asked for that. I would have been a wreck, right? I would have been horrible to Nick. I would have been crabby to my kids. I would have been horrible to my clients. But you gotta know, like, when you're at almost a breaking point before the breaking point, and you gotta take that time. And that requires asking for help. So, whether it's within your career, asking for connections, like people want to help people, but they can't do that if they don't know what it is you're trying to do. Yeah.
1: I find it's way easier to ask for help when you have been helping. Others, you know, totally when you're when you know that you've kind of done your share, you do your share, then you start to get a lot more comfortable asking for help. It feels pretty natural, yeah, for sure. Kind of like, you know, uh, I'm now repaying this favor to you,
0: yeah, (laughs) Uh the debt's been paid. I'm just giving you a hard time.
1: Um, let me let me ask you, you know, you're you mentioned this, this, you know asking your husband for help and, and the vacation. You have a love for solo vacations. Ugh. Talk about that. I think this is really interesting because, you know, most times people, when they have vacation or take vacation, they're going with their spouse, their family, right? Sometimes we say mm-hmm. depending on where your kids are, those are trips, not vacations.
0: Oh, for sure they're right? trips. Let's get be clear about so that. So talk
1: yeah. about how you've come to love solo vacations.
0: Oh my gosh. So before I married Nick, you know, all of my friends, you know, I'm in my mid 30s at this time, and all of my friends are married and have kids or, you know, are in relationships and they're not wanting to go on vacations with me. And so I knew if I wanted to go on trips, I would need to go by myself. And so the first time I went uh, on a vacation just for myself, I went to Vieques, which is an island uh, off of San Juan in Puerto Rico. And what I love about the island is it's, you know, it's a little bit shoddy still. It's starting to be more developed, which is disappointing. But like there are horses running around and, and cows and stray dogs everywhere. And it's just, you know, you have to have four-wheel drive to get where you're going. Um, and so I, I went on this solo vacation. And, and as I got on the little puddle jumper, there the plane, like the six other people in the plane were these men from Boston. And they were going for a wedding. And I knew the minute I got on the plane, I would be invited to the wedding. I was like, well, this is going to be fun, <laughs> right? And so sure as shit we land, I, you know, agree to join them at the rehearsal dinner that night on this little island, you know, bar had pizza and beers, but they weren't interesting enough for me to want to give one of my vacation days to go to the wedding. Uh-huh. So I declined, but it's those experiences. Like you meet people that you never otherwise would have met. You have these experiences. Uh, the next time I went to the Ecke's on my own, It was over Valentine's day. And I remember going to my favorite restaurant there, El Canepo. And there was a man at the bar and he was 80 years old. And it was the first time he had ever traveled alone. And he was also from Boston and he had traveled with joints in his socks because he likes to smoke weed. Uh, and uh, his name was Ralph. And so I get to know Ralph. And then all of a sudden, this other man shows up. And his name is Tim. And he's from Chicago. He uh, had retired. He was you know, like 50. He was a venture capitalist. And he wanted to start a boating business on Vieques. He was in the middle of a divorce or was planning to get divorced at the time. And there I was in this big transition. So we decided to meet every night for dinner. I would go by myself. To these beaches, have the best day. And every night we would regroup. And the three of us would have dinner. And, uh, you know, we smoked one of Ralph's joints and we had the best time. And we all kept in touch and we made commitments. And Ralph wanted to travel again on his own. Uh, Tim wanted to start the boating business. I wanted to get in the ring and fight and do Muay Thai. And we all did it. Right, um, and so I still, I actually still get emails from Ralph. He's still doing well, wow. and uh, you know, I if you travel with friends or with your spouse or with your kids, you're not going to meet the Ralphs and the Tims and, and be invited to weddings mm-hmm. and, and do all that stuff. So I just, I treasure getting to know people and the unexpected. I also treasure being able to do what I want when I want. Right. And so that's why I love solo vacations. Like if I want to pack a cooler of beers and a can of peanuts, which is what I do when I go to Vieques and go to an, I go to a beach where I'm not going to see another person for six or seven hours and read a book. Like that's what I want to do. Um, and in fact, right before the shut, I was supposed to go to Vieques by myself in March. I had invited Nick alone. And this is how, you know, you've married the right person. He said to me, Reagan, you haven't been on a solo trip in so long. And I love going to Vieques with you because he's been with me several times. He said, but I feel like this time you should go on your own. Mm-hmm. Like you deserve mm-hmm. it. Right. Like what a man. Um, and then the shutdown. So I didn't get that trip, yeah. but I'm hopeful I'll get to go to Vieques again. Well, I think
1: it's really wonderful. You know, I, I think some people need it more than others. You know, some people like that independence, that alone time, that freedom to explore and just you know do whatever you do. It it there's a stigma around it. You know, there's there is definitely like oh well, why is she doing that? Or, why does totally. he not want to be with his kids? You know, we 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 had a friend who recently. Um, Took a solo vacation, and there was some, you know, question about like, well, why would you do that? Right. And
0: uh, isn't that something? So, when I went to Chicago, sorry to interrupt. When I went to Chicago for that weekend away, when I was really, you know, at the bottom because I was so exhausted, a friend of mine is married to a man that is not Nick, he's the antithesis of Nick. And he's like, why would she do that? Maybe she's not happy. And my friend actually really wants to do something on her own, but she's never allowed to get away from her husband. Like he that's not something that he would ever allow, like honestly. And um people do talk about it. And I what I love about Nick, he's like, yeah, you yes, you should go, right? Like I support you a hundred percent. Yeah. Um there it is you gotta be you surround yourself with the right people that are strong enough. I think
1: it's really a healthy thing from both partners' perspective because what happens, I know, you know, when I've traveled and and my wife had to kind of get used to me traveling um and maybe i was traveling too much at one point she listens to every episode so she'll be listening to this oh i can't yeah. wait to
0: find yeah, out yeah well the yeah. thing is is
1: that like when the kids were little you know it was a lot on her and and so i get why it was hard but she also learned to embrace it and actually see the positives for her that there ended up being these times that she had with the kids, especially as they got older. Time that she had to herself, they kind of got their own routine, and it was kind of easier in some ways because there wasn't two people there, you know, talking about what was going to happen, right? And so, you know, there is a little bit, and I I know when she's done it, um, you know, you miss them, you're excited for them to come back you know, um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, you can have some fun, you know, when I, I've taken the, the kids on some solo trips, um, which is also kind of a different version of solo trip, but I'm a huge proponent of like, take one of your kids or take two of the kids, or, you know, and, and when we go, we kind of make a joke that like, the only rule is there's no rules, right? I love And it. so, you know, you kind of like, do things differently, I guess, is the point. Then you're used to doing them all the time. That kind of break in the routine, I think, is really healthy.
0: Yeah, I do. I, I think so as well. I love that you do that trip with your kids. That's something I really wanted. to do. I
1: waited too long. And um, I waited till they were a little bit um, too old. Not too old, but I wished I had done sooner, I should say. It's one of the best experiences I think you can have with your kids because you just get to kind of like be with them differently. The dynamic is different. But tell me, just also on the solo vacation thing, Dan Sullivan from Strategic St- 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 Coach, who I love, talks about free days. And there's mm-hmm. a you know idea that you can take a a free trip, really, um, but a free, could be a free day where you don't work at all. You don't think about work. You don't read stuff about work. You don't, you know, kind of talk, email anything about work. When you're on these solo trips, do you use them as time to plan, to reflect, to kind of get organized about work at all? Or is Mm -mm. this solely just Reagan time, free time?
0: Yeah. If it's a solo vacation, I am literally sitting on a beach, uh, you know, doing nothing i I might work out. Like that might be the the most that I do. If I am doing a retreat and intentional about, you know, thinking about my business, that's a retreat. So I have different versions of that. When I'm on a solo vacation, I'm just enjoying my life. I'm not checking email, I'm not doing anything. It's truly for me to reboot reboot because that's my personality. Like I can go hard and I can be, all things to all people until I can't. And then I need to be all things for me. And that's just like respite. And that's how I recharge.
1: Yeah, yeah great. Okay. You mentioned the Muay Thai, and um, yeah. there's a good story about you there getting punched in the face. Um, but I, I'm curious, I will, you to know, tell the story, but I'm also curious about kind of what you've learned through that modality in general.
0: Yeah, for sure. So it's interesting because Muay Thai came to me at a time that I, you know, I didn't know how bad I needed it. I was in a marriage that was so far from what I ever dreamt of. And somebody invited me to take a class and all of a sudden I was hooked, right? And then all of a sudden I wanted to train for a fight. And what I loved about it um, is that it's a mental game. I mean, sure, if you're an athlete, which I wouldn't consider myself an athlete at that moment, you know, it's it's exercise and it's hard and, and you're fighting, right? But it's such a mental game because the mind is the is the most critical weapon of all, right? Because your mind can make you Sink or swim, and for me, I was really good at letting my mind uh, be okay with getting punched in the face. I remember training for a fight, and you know, th- there's like a dance right with Muay Thai. It's it's traditional Thai boxing, and and so I was moving backwards, and somebody was literally just punching me in the face, and I was like one of those dolls that you you know slam down and it pops up. Like my head kept popping backwards and and I got hit in the face, probably a hundred times, like had whiplash. It was so bad, but I showed up again the next day, right? Mm -hmm. I wasn't an athlete. I had a strong mind. Uh, which is and I had a strong mind and I was a southpaw, so I'm a lefty, which is unexpected. And because of my mind and the fact that I was left-handed, uh, that became an advantage. And so when I did get in the ring and I did fight, I won mm-hmm. because number one, I bamboozled people because the first round of the fight, they're just trying to figure out what the fuck's going on because my legs are different and my hands are coming out the different, mm-hmm. you know, different directions. Uh, and my mind, I I didn't assume that I was going to be better. Like I knew it was going to be a grind for me because I had always been fighting from behind. You know, I I share in the book, I wasn't a natural student. Like all of these things required me to work harder than other people. And so, you know, in training, I just worked harder. I would stand in front of the mirror and I would throw punches and I would watch how my hands were moving. When I got hit in the face, I would show up again the next day. Um, And so the mind is such a powerful tool and and getting back up again. And if you happen to be left-handed, then that's just, you know, icing on the cake.
1: Yeah, it's great. You know, I actually had this conversation with my coach this morning, because we're in this um, big group Peloton challenge. Um, that's really like all of his clients and, and friends. And we're in day 15 of 21, I guess it is. And um, a lot of people are feeling fatigued. And there's not the same kind of incentive. There's been some rides where you get bonus points for a personal record, or there was a calculation that gave you points. And now they're just like straight up rides to ride. And so Mm -hmm. it's really, you don't have the same kind of incentive other than one that would be uh, self-driven. And so the whole coaching today was on like, it's not your injury, it's not your fatigue. It's you, right? And and it starts with the mind, like I'm going to do this, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to give this everything. And I love that you can learn so much. And Muay Thai is one of those things. I've not done it. My son does it, but I've seen so many people learn about life through Muay Thai and through sports and being active and other it could be art. I mean, I, I paint and I'm I'm learning about the resistance and the struggle and the and the attachments. You know, there's so much you can learn by doing life.
0: Yeah. I didn't know your son did Muay Thai. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm so glad to know that. It yeah, it's such a it's an amazing
1: sport. Yeah, he just took it up um this summer and yeah, he's he's really taken to it. Uh okay, so let's come back and talk about the book again. I know yeah. that you uh had a um a publisher at one point that you were in the running for. Talk a little bit about the the Hay House experience, and then and also kind of what that was like in this journey of writing the book to you know not go down that path.
0: Yeah, so I had entered a publishing contest, and uh, you have to write a book proposal, submit it, and then they pick three people that win. And I just. I went after it big time. I really believed I was going to get one of those three spots and I came in fourth. And man, Brett, I was devastated. I was so sad and and also embarrassed for some reason. Like I felt like wow, I thought I was I thought that I was better than I was and that felt embarrassing. But the feedback they gave me was this was a great, you know, this is a great book and for sure someone's going to pick it up, right? So I once I, you know, let my bruises heal i i started to network with different agents and, and tried to land a publishing deal and after about six months i kept hearing the same thing your proposal is incredible your stories are amazing but in your genre of what you do there are other people that have huge platforms right that are that are already out there so we're not going to accept this and so i realized that i could continue to start building my platform and trying to get more followers that's what they mean by that or I could just write the damn book and publish it myself. So I decided to go that route so I could get this story out because it's been like on my heart for you know a long time. And it, it's just so interesting how things unfold. I think for sure this is the best thing that's happened to me uh, in terms of timing, um, in terms of people that have come out to say, hey, I want to support y- this work being on this podcast. Um, I recently announced that the first week of book sales, um, I'm going to donate all of the royal. And I had a conversation with a a woman I met in a mastermind. And I said, you know, how did you go about when you created your family foundation? How did you go about doing that? And I shared my goal with her. And she said, why don't I match it? Mm. Right? Like, I didn't know her two years ago. I met her, uh, you know, eight months ago and had i had I published the book before, i wouldn't have this force behind me who's like, "I want to match your gift and I want to be part of this, and I want to share this with my network um, and so you just have to trust the timing of your life, yeah. right, even when things don 't go well mm-hmm. right there's a bigger purpose there 's a reason why things play out the way that they do, and you, and that again goes back to trust yeah
1: yeah, I think that's a really great um place to kind of land you know I do know this this publishing struggle the, to publish or to self publish right and the um, i think it's kind of both a blessing and a curse that that you know the curse part you know which which i think is a little sad is that it is all about the following right and mm-hmm. and you know that makes me sad because i think there's like some amazing stories and human beings that are getting left behind because they haven't dedicated their time and resources and obsession to building a following of followers, right? On the other Mm -hmm. hand, there's this incredible world of self-publishing, which most people that have gone the self-publishing route um, feel like it's way better. I mean, first of all, you're in control. You get to write your story the way you want it to read. Uh, you get to call it what you want to call it. you get to do it when mm-hmm. you want to do it. you know you you, you
0: get to make seventy percent right. instead of like ten percent
1: right so
0: I mean honestly yeah. there are a lot of upsides yeah,
1: I, when I was exploring this um in my mastermind, somebody said to me, uh, well, what is it you want to accomplish if, if if you want this to be read by the most amount of people possible, then don't go the publishing route because they're yeah. only gonna put Resources behind like one or two books a year, right? Yours mm-hmm. is probably never going to actually get anything. Um, if you want to go the self-publishing route, you can get it into way more hands.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think it's knowing the why. So for me, as you know, I do a lot of keynote speaking. So for me to be able to have this book, it opens more doors, right? And so it grows my business in a different way. And now more people will read my book because because of that, you know, angle with the speaking work that I do. So. You got to get over your ego. So, for me, it was an ego thing, right? I wanted to be able to say, oh, you know, I have this publisher backing me. Um, But that's so silly. So, once I got out of my own way, um, then I just like pressed the gas and I got it done. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's very honest and what it is usually for most people. I mean, I think that there's some people that are at a level with the following where there's real money involved in advances and. You know, marketing dollars, and there's maybe some benefit to that. But if most people are being honest, it's ego. You know, there's something about kind of like feeling like somebody thinks you're worthy at that level that feels good, you know, which, which is, you know, um, fine, but it's it's it is what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Reagan, tell me, um, kind of final thoughts. Anything else that you want the audience to know about Heart Boss? Maybe actually, you could end with telling us the inspiration behind the name of the book. Maybe that's a perfect place. Oh, yeah. To
0: okay, that's awesome. Um, so have you read The Power of One?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. So I actually have it right here. Mm -hmm. So the inspiration from the name comes from the power of one. And I read the power of one when I was training for my first fight, when I was getting punched in the face repeatedly. And, um, I, for some reason, this book, so it's about a boxer in South Africa and apartheid. There's all these beautiful themes in the book and, um, I have it here and I'm going to read it to you. It says it's, it's all about getting in the ring and it says, it's good to be a little frightened. It's good to respect your opponent. It keeps you sharp. In the fight game, the head rules the heart, but in the end, the heart is boss. And it was interesting because I wrote that on an index card along with a few other uh, quotes from this book, and I kept them next to my bed. I had them taped on my refrigerator to keep me focused. And I knew my my mind was going to be everything in this fight because I wasn't naturally a boxer, right? And so I knew my mind was everything, but in the end, it came down to the heart, right? And so it was interesting brainstorming ideas actually with Christy, our mutual friend. And, you know, we, I was like, it's all about the heart, you know, and, you know, and I, I shared this quote with her and together we came up with heart bus. We're like, is it that simple? Like this quote that has meant something to me for so long, that is truly like, was, I found it during that moment of deep transition and change in my life. And that's. Truly where the the name came from is from the power of one. I
1: love it. I love it. And it makes total sense. You know, I mean, that's kind of the observation I have of you is you're a boss. You know, you're out there kicking ass, being courageous, doing all this stuff, being honest and vulnerable about where you're struggling, where you're weak, the experience of being a mother, of having a career, you know, all of it. And it's just coming from your heart. And you're leading with that. And it's obvious and uh, it's fun to watch and fun to have you here to talk about it.
0: You're the best. I appreciate you big time. And you're also a boss. So good for us.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks, Reagan. You be well and good luck. And everybody go out and buy Heart Boss. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at kaufman 125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.